Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Waits. Hello, welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. I'm joined today in the ATP Story Studio by Marty Roberts, CEO of Entouch in Japan. Marty, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Graham. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. You're just up the road from me. We're both in the Tokyo area. Let's talk about Entouch first so people can understand what that is all about. And then we talk about this fascinating background to it. Is it appropriate to say that you're in the med tech, health tech space? Yes, we are. And what we're primarily focused on is improving communications uh, between doctors, uh, pharma companies, and patients. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? Because unless you work in that space, you don't know what the problem is that you're trying to solve there. Because people kind of assume doctors, pharma they communicate quite freely right it seems to be this perception that it's all kind of working these are really intelligent qualified people they should have it all worked out but we're kind of we'll go down that road and understand what's really the situation in that space as well i'm sure you'll kind of uncover that and share some insights with us but before we do that just a bit about your background as well you're a psychologist like myself you actually trained and you were you're a phd in clinical psychology right yeah, clinical and school psychology. Right. And for those who don't know, clinical psychology is what? Uh, of course, to study the diseases and treatments of, of the brain and behavior. Right. right. So I was a behavioral psychologist doing cognitive behavior therapy in oh, the well, U.S. There you are. Did, did you actually train as that? Did you go out and uh, – because, uh, you know, and to call yourself a psychologist, I mean, in the UK, for example, anybody can call themselves a psychologist, but I think in the US, you actually have to go and have a license, right? I'm not sure, but did you actually go out? Yeah, 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 yeah. it's a protected label, right? So you exactly. have to earn the degrees and put in the hours. So yeah, I mean, I was finished my PhD in it and I was uh, treating patients. It was, it was actually quite fun. It was a rewarding job. Right. So when I call myself a psychologist, I do that qualified as a UK psychologist, which basically means I did a degree. So I, exactly. A bit different to your situation. So that was your background. Um, we'll talk about what your story was. You came to Japan. There's a really interesting arc in your story there. Um, you worked in the pharma space for a number of years in research. We'll talk about that. So we'll put all that on the table. Let's talk about in touch first because this is what sure. you do you say you're focused on improving communications what exactly are you trying to do give us a, an understanding for a kind of problem that you're solving in that space sure so um japan's facing a, a pretty unique situation right now in terms of healthcare and pharmaceuticals and medical device and how the services are delivered and it's similar to what happened in the U.S., I would say, between like 2005 to 2010, whereas the entire promotional model is being changed. Hmm. Um, so it's a little bit complex, but, but let me walk you through it because it's pretty interesting. Um, when you mean promotional uh, model, you mean what? Like how pharma markets to doctors? How pharma markets to right. doctors, exactly. Right. So... It, before starting in touch, I was running a. We'll get into it maybe more later, but I was running a market, a pharmaceutical market research uh, company. I was also running a pharmaceutical software company where we sold the software that medical reps. Medical reps are the salespeople for pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. that the medical reps were using to record their appointments with doctors, and 
what was really fascinating is I had all of this data pouring in from our software company because we were the number one provider in Japan. And at the same time, so, you know, the data set is the MRs, the medical reps reporting who they visited, what they said. And then on the market research side, I had a panel of doctors reporting in who they recalled being visited by, <laughs> what they recalled being told. Mm. And the data was just absolutely didn't match, right? Um, so... What do you mean by that? You said you had this data coming in from the medical reps and you had... Right. To, so the right. medical reps were reporting, yes, I did what's called a detail. And a detail is when you explain some product information about a right. medicine to a doctor. Right. So they were reporting these details, but the doctors were recalling the same situation. And mm. what the doctor was uh, experiencing was the MR standing in the hospital hallway and as the doctor walked right. by, the MR would bow and say in Japanese, which just means like, you know, please, please be nice right, to me. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was, when I started looking at it, I started realizing how amazingly inefficient mm. this heavy reliance on MRs is in Japan because the pharmaceutical industry spends about $20 billion annually to promote drugs to doctors in Japan, mm. but it's done in such a highly inefficient manner, right? About 60%, 70 or more of all of that money is being spent on these armies of MRs. Right. A big pharma company would have 1,500, 2,000 of these guys. And they're, I mean, they're paid high, right? $100,000, dollars a year. Um, and it's not, it's not the MR's fault, but it's just the fact System. of the matter. Yeah, is that they spend, you know, the vast amount of their day just waiting. Right. They're waiting in hospital hallways, they're waiting in cars, cause they're trying to get two minutes of a doctor's time, right? To pitch mm. that doctor about a new drug or some new data. Um, so, but, so let, let's understand that. Just, I think it's really fascinating what you're saying. So, Let's say you take an MR who's effectively a sales guy. He's a field sales guy, right, for the pharma right. company. Right. So he does he go to the hospital and have an appointment set with the doctor, or is he just kind of like waiting to ambush him with like his briefcase and, you know, here's my medicine. But for him, if he can meet that doctor and, and show him the product, even if the doctor's kind of rushing to the next appointment, which he always is, right, doctors don't sit around. Right. He, the DMR can check that off and say, right, okay, meeting done. I can send that back to base and tell them I've hit my target for the day. Exactly. Exactly. That's what happens. Um, to answer your earlier question, yeah, the MRs do try to book appointments, but that's very difficult with the doctors. So they usually are trying to ambush them in the hallway. <laughs> um, but the the MRs, if you look at it, about even though they might talk to the doctor only for two minutes, about 40% of the time – after that interaction, a doctor says, okay, I learned something interesting. I'll mm. increase my prescriptions or I'll start prescribing that new, that new product. Um, when you look at – in Japan, there's very few other channels to market to doctors. Right. Right. So you basically have your army of MRs. And beyond that, you might have uh, some digital, which would in Japan mainly be – a uh, portal or a website, um, you know, a branded website. But it's not like other countries. So, like, in the U.S. or in Europe, but especially, let's say, the U.S., you have so many channels to market to doctors. You have your MRs, but you also have um, 
sampling, right? You can provide samples of the mm-hmm. drugs. You can't really do so much in Japan. Um, you have direct-to-consumer advertising, right, on TV, <laughs> telling you directly about a medicine to the patient. You can't do that in Japan. Right. So Japan's really limited. Is that a regulation thing? Yeah, it's all right. regulation thing, right? And what Japan's facing now is some big, big issues. So, like, you have this aging population, hmm. right? Um, rapidly aging population, more chronic diseases, making the doctors even busier because it's not like there's many. It's not like doctors are increasing. Um, at the same time, the government, of course, wants to control those costs. So. In medicine, you have branded medicine. That's like the new drugs that are developed that are still patented. Uh, that's what the pharma companies sell. Right. And then you have generic medicine, right, which is, you know, a third of the price from probably less than that to the branded medicine. They can come out, you know, after the patent expires. Mm-hmm. So right now, generic medicine makes up about 60% of prescriptions in Japan, which is quite low compared to other industrialized nations Mm -hmm. and the government's targeting that to be 80% of prescriptions will be generic by 2020. Okay. So they're doing that to contain costs. Right. But is that then educating the doctor to go with generic or just having more choice or, uh, well, the way the government does it is in Japan, of course it's national health insurance. So the doctor is, being paid basically by the government. So mm-hmm. the government will award more points and ultimately more money to the doctor if he or she chooses to prescribe a generic. Right. Okay. Than the brand right. So what this is doing, the impact is that <clears throat> once there's a generic available, pharmaceutical companies' revenues are plummeting. Mm. Right. And as their revenues are plummeting, they're looking at their cost structure and their largest expense is sales and marketing. And when you go through those line items, it's having an army of Right. 2,000 guys. Inefficient. Um, inefficient in, armor, right? It's, it's a numbers game for them, but it's a shotgun approach almost, right, for these pharma companies. Exactly. Exactly. And, like, we saw it a long time ago, I would say late 90s in the U.S., where you had, like, this arms race of trying to see who could build the largest teams of MRs and just get what was called share of voice, like, the, mm. just be the loudest out there. Uh, but then the U.S. faced similar issues early 2000s and so you just see from 2005 to 2010 the number of MRs in the US just plummet decreased by like a third or a half um, and but at the same time the pharma companies managed to keep increasing their sales because what they learned is that we can connect with doctors through multiple different channels right and that's when they started really uh, playing around with those other channels whereas Japan we're now in a similar situation because as the Generics will increase and revenues plummet. Pharma companies are responding by we have to get rid of our costs. So they go after their biggest cost, which is their MRs. Mm-hmm. But what's a little bit different in Japan than the U.S., of course, is the, it's how strong the labor laws are. So in Japan, you can't just say, you know, you're a bad MR, you're a bad MR, you're a bad right. MR, get out, right? You yeah. have to offer early retirement packages to everyone. So as the pharma companies are trying to release 200, 300, 400 people at once, um, they have to offer these packages to everyone. And what ends up happening is, in one way, you start losing some of your best MRs, right? Yeah. Um, when I was at my old company, before I quit to start Entouch, I, I, had, I was interested in who was taking these early retirement packages. So I had a friend of mine who's a recruiter, 
find me some of these people who just left uh, so I could interview them. And it was interesting because this plays into how we came up with NTouch. What the interesting finding was there was basically two groups of MRs who were taking early retirement packages. On the one hand, you had the older guys, yep. the guys really close to retirement age anyways, and they get you know two years' salary to just walk away. Yep. I would do it too. Um, those guys are great because they know all the doctors, they know all the yep. secretaries, they know everyone's schedule, they've been selling in that area for 20 years. And then on the other side of the equation, we had these younger females, late 20s to mid-30s female MRs, who left to have a child. And even though the uh, efficiency of the MR day-to-day might not be so fantastic, Hmm. they are still grueling hours, right? And so it's very difficult for these mothers to come back into the workforce. Right, especially in Japan as well. There's a lot of, I mean, people who don't live in Japan, listeners may not appreciate so Uh, much the the cultural aspects as well. It's like, you know, you're a mom, why the hell are you back in the workforce type approach? I mean, that's kind of, that still exists, right? Oh, absolutely. And and for people who don't live in Japan, it, it... might find this strange. There's no such thing as a babysitter in Japan, right? <laughs> That's I true. I haven't noticed this word for a babysitter. That is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. There you go. So what we ended up doing is we started looking at okay, the, this MR channel isn't super efficient, and pharma is spending a huge amount of money on a on a fairly inefficient system. We looked at the only other channel they had was digital, as I said, some websites and portals, but. As I mentioned before, about 40% of the time after an MR talks to a doctor, he'll increase his prescriptions. But when you look at when the doctor you know, views a website or goes to a portal, it's only about half as effective, only about mm. 20% of the time. Because it's not, it's not interactive, right? It's mm. just reading something on a website or watching a two-minute video. <clears throat> it's brochures, so, right? Brochures. Yeah, it's commercials. So it has some impact, and the ROI is great because it's very inexpensive. Uh, it's also great – for the doctor, it, in that digital interactions can be more efficient for the doctor because the doctor selects the time when he wants to look mm. at the website. Mm. Right? But it's just not effective for the pharma company. So our thought at InTouch was, okay, we've got these fantastic people out of work, not necessarily looking for full-time work anymore because they just took these packages. Um, and at the same time, we have doctors who are – fairly not super impressed with what's going on digitally, but they like the efficiency aspect of it. So why don't we marry the efficiency of digital and the effectiveness of a human MR? And so what the NTICH approach does is it allows doctors to book appointments uh, at the time of the doctor's choosing on topics that are relevant and of interest to the doctor. And then he can connect with an NTICH. We call them medical partners, but they're all trained MRs. Mm-hmm. You can connect with our MPs, medical partners, to have a online discussion, kind of like Skype. Interesting. Kind of. So let, let's say I'm a doctor and I, I want to get some more info about the latest statins, for example. Just pluck a, a drug with, you know, right. there's going to be a, a ton of information out there, different drugs, right? right. So I go to InTouch. And what happens next? I, I find a, somebody who's a specialist in this area and then arrange a Skype call. How does it work? Yeah, basically. So there's different ways that we lead the doctor in. Um, We started with our own initial website, and maybe someday we'll go back to that. But we also sort of pivoted and started working through 
um, the pharma company's own websites. Mm. So the doctor might be interested in this newest statin from, I don't know, Pfizer, let's say. And he goes to the Pfizer website and, you know, there's a button, for instance, it could be any company. It doesn't have to be Pfizer, where he sees the new statin information and it says, you know, do you want more information? Click to call now. Hmm. Right. And it connects them live with a live medical rep who's trained on that product or book a time for later. Right. right. So that would actually be on the, the farmer's yeah. website, your yeah. technology. Okay. Got it. And that would then link back through your system. Exactly. To your and medical experts. To all of our teams. Right. Right. Yeah. Medical partners. Right. Yeah. And the impact is phenomenal. Right. Because instead of being ambushed in a hallway by yes. someone trying to pull out their meishi, their business card at the doctor, the doctor chose the time. So instead of two minutes with the doctor, we're getting 25 minutes mm. on average. Right. Um, instead of just have 40% of the time the doctor increases prescription, we're getting over 80% mm. of the time. Uh, I think there's I, an important part about that is the quality of the time as well because the two minutes in the hallway – for the first minute, the doctor's thinking, what the hell are we talking about? What's the relevance of this? I'm not, this isn't top of my list right now. And then the next minute is trying to get rid of this guy as he's going to his next yeah. appointment. But, you know, he says, right, I want to know about statins right now for X, Y, and Z reasons, right? Then he's open to that idea. So even if he only had two minutes on the phone, right? The right. fact that he's now, right, this is top of my list. I want to know about this. He's open and receptive. So time to time, not so much, but the quality of the time that they're going to get with that person is really important, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Right. And uh, going back to our psychology, right, there's all different ways that people are motivated, but inherent motivation is one of the strongest yeah. uh, drivers, right? So if the guy is inherently motivated to learn about this, he or she will take that time. And because we're using these um, – our team, right, we're, we're these retired MRs, we have them working from home workstations, mm-hmm. right? So we give them the computers, the headsets, um, you know, the Wi-Fi, everything they need. We give them training, like lots and lots of training um, because selling online is a lot different than selling face-to-face. Yeah. Um, so we also have NHK, which is the, like, national broadcasting company of japan like nhk trains our medical partners on how to speak like broadcasters in fact they're training a group today um so so let's understand that process again right because this is fascinating so i'm a doctor i want to know about statins i go to the pfizer website i just as an example it could be pfizer could be anybody else right i see the end touch button so to speak click that connects to end touch that then connects the doctor with an MP, a medical partner, and there's some conversation, whether it's there or appointment-based, where right. that person and then gives them the latest information, and they, they could be at home. Yeah, so that's actually kind of one of the reasons why it works so well, yeah. is when they connect, it's sort of kind of like Skype. I mean, you can see our medical partner's face, uh, but also there's slides usually being presented yeah. on our videos, etc. everything, moving graphs. So it really draws the doctor's attention. But this, one of the things that works so well is, yes, our people are working from home. Yeah. So, uh, and they're all working part-time different hours. So we can keep our phones open from six in the morning to 11 at night. Yeah, exactly. Right. And what we're finding is uh, maybe about 40 percent of our calls are coming at like eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. Yes. 
Yeah. Right? Because that's when the doctor actually had time. Downtime, yeah. So it's... That's really interesting. really effective. Yeah. really, really impactful. Especially, I mean, again, let's go back to the the Japan thing. I mean, you know it better anybody else, you know, because you've worked inside Japanese companies with Japanese people. And we talked a little bit about the whole thing about, let's say I was a medical rep, a female, had a child, left the workforce. Well, that, that's, that's already first strike, isn't it, for that career, for that lady, right? But, right. you know, if she was to come back into the workforce, if she came back, she would have to make certain sacrifices. You said the word babysitter doesn't even exist. You know, what do you do if you have a young child, blah, 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 all those kind of things. But that's a big issue in Japan, isn't it? That there's redundancy. I don't mean it in terms of losing a job, but I mean it in terms of, you know, there's this wealth of talent in Japan, which isn't being tapped in the same way. You know, when you look at Airbnb as an example, right? Mm. You know, people have these places which aren't, you know, these great accommodations which aren't being used because they don't have a system to connect it all up, right? Whereas, you know, you have all these people who have relationships, who have knowledge, who have know how to talk to doctors, they know the products, but the system has kind of locked them out because of, you know, some life choices they've made. But now, now they can have the best of both worlds. They can, you know, during the daytime, maybe they can do their family thing, but, you know, maybe they can work in the evening and cover those late hours, which they wouldn't have been able to do if they were working for some pharma company, right? So, right. and that's really interesting. I find that fascinating as well. Just in Japan, that's a huge thing, right? Well, yeah. I mean, because if you look at it in Japan, uh, women are, tend to be really well educated. I mean, it's co- comparatively compared to other parts of the world. Hmm. Uh, they're also delaying childbirth later, but then once they have the child, you, that's it. Your your job has changed to become a mom, basically. Yeah. And that's really sad because you just took half of your best and brightest and took them out of your workforce. Exactly. <laughs> so for us, we thought that it was a huge potential um, to help support these women um, because, uh, in fact, we did a lot of work. We spent... I would say my HR woman and I spent a month researching all of the different childcare options in Japan um, so that we could provide to these women uh, lists of this is what's available in your area, this is how much each thing costs, this is the stipend we're going to provide you on top of your hourly salary, for instance, or monthly salary. So uh, we had to do a lot <laughs> of invention mm. to make this work for these right. women. But, it, but it's worth it. And actually when I started in touch, I – had no money, right? So I first went to the Japanese government and I explained to them the business plan and the problem I was trying to solve, the business plan. And I sort of mentioned to them, I was like, well, you know, Prime Minister Abe said that women will revitalize Japan, but I don't see much happening. And like, we're ready to do it. So, (laughs) but we Mm. need money. So they gave us like $200,000 non-secured loan to get started, which was great. Right, right. And was that on the basis of, was one of the the stories that you pitched to them about, you know, revitalizing Japan through this sort of latent female workforce? Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And it's true because that's what we wanted to do, right? Because, and not just the female workforce, but also the the older guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Japan's also pretty, um, it's probably pretty well known uh, about Japan is there's a, mm, I'll just say it, lots of ageism. Yeah. when it comes to employment, yeah. right? So, But they're given kind of – they're not 
It's not ageism. I mean, what we know outside of Japan, if I can use the word the West, it's like, you know, ageism, a little bit different in the sense that in Japan, if you're the old guy and you're not, you know, kaicho, you're not, not, not the president or whatever, you're right. the guy now in the bank who opens the door for the, the customers coming in. And you know that guy is only doing that because it keeps him busy and it's kind of an honor thing. But he, he yeah. doesn't want to be doing that. I mean, this guy's got years and years of experience, right? So that's the kind of ageism in that sense, isn't it? That they get pushed out into <clears throat> those kind of meaningless jobs, right? That Yeah, exactly. Because if if you step away from your career in your 50s, let's say, who's going to hire that, that guy again in Japan, yeah. right? Except to open the door. And it, that's really sad as well because those guys have a wealth of yeah. uh, knowledge to contribute. So – that was basically what I explained to the government. And, and at that point, I mean, it was just me and a PowerPoint. I didn't, like, have a team. I didn't have anything. Right. But I just explained, you know, this is the concept and this is what we're trying to do. This, our social mission is to improve these two, the lives of these two groups of people and make them taxpayers again. And that will help Japan. And, uh, but, you know, we need some cash. Right. And you're successful. Let's talk about that because you weren't always an entrepreneur. You were working for... A French farm is it farm or a market research company Sejadim? Yeah, so, yeah, I was working for a, a global French firm called Sejadim that focused mainly on one side of the business was all market research for pharmaceutical and med right. device companies. The other side of the business was Salesforce automation software for for the same type of customers. Right. So here's what's interesting, and it needs explaining. Here's a why question. You started as an analyst. And ended up as a president. Right. So, in a, yeah. in, okay, I know it's a French company, but most of your co-workers were Japanese. I mean, and you're not Japanese, that's obvious, right? Right. And right. E- even if you spoke fluent Japanese, you're still not Japanese, right? So I- I'm right. fascinated about that rise. You know, that, that's pretty fast ascent in the Jap- any kind of company, right? You know, yeah. you, you only become a president when you're in your 60s, right? In most Japanese companies. So what's the story there? How did all that happen? Yeah. Um, well, originally I was, you know, I, I was a psychologist and then I decided that, you know, I wanted to do more research and I realized I could only do that in either academia or business. Uh, I knew that I'd be more attracted to international sort of business stuff. So I started working at a, a company called Forest Laboratories, which was uh, a pharma company. Uh, but then I was quickly headhunted away by Sejadim in the U- U.S. Uh, to work in their New York, New Jersey office. And I was an analyst there, and I was helping them set up uh, patient data records projects mainly and primary market research. So we were collecting lots and lots of patient records and then creating intelligent databases from them so that we could report back to pharma companies how the drugs were really being used. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how long after diagnosis does the doctor actually prescribe the drug? Uh, how compliant is the patient with actually taking the drug? Stuff like that. Then because it was a French company and like the office was in New Jersey, but I lived in Brooklyn, New York, the president of the market research side would fly in. He'd be staying in Manhattan and I'd have to drive and pick him up at the hotel and drive him to New Jersey and then drop him off at the hotel and go back to Brooklyn. And so we became good friends, um, just you know, chatting about everything under the sun. We had mutual love for the same video games and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he was asking me, he's like, what do you want to do with your career? And I said, well, 
to be honest, I just want to get out of New York. Because at that oh. point, I'd been living in New York City for about 12 years, and it's a great city, but um, it's just time to leave. So he asked me where I wanted to go, and I gave him like a whole list. I was like, I'll go to India, I'll go to China. Wow. I, no, I'll go to India, I'll go to Germany, I'll go to... It was like anywhere uh, but New York, to, right? Yeah, I'll go to Japan. And he was just like, Japan, I need you in Japan. Wow. So, you know, uh, sometime after that, I sold everything I had. I took two bags and flew over to the Japan office. Um, in Osaka? In Osaka. The office, the main office for the company was in Osaka. And uh, yeah, and then I was an analyst there. Did you speak Japanese before you got there? <clears throat> no. Wow. So when he said you're going to Japan, was that an easy decision for you? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, yeah, sure. Not a problem. And in fact, I told him, I was like, you know, I'm going to have to start taking Japanese lessons. And uh, my boss, Bruno, said, learn French. <laughs> <laughs> well, and exactly. That, that's a bit of a mishmash trying to learn two at once, right? It's, right. Fa it's fascinating because you, with, with your background and no, I don't want to be presumptuous, but you know, if you go down a clinical route, if you become a PhD in psychology and you've studied and you've done the clinical practice, it's a very safe route. You know, it's mapped out for you. And now you're sort of throwing yourself out there into something that's kind of a bit wild by comparison, right? I mean, just curious to know what your thought processes were then. Um, probably not good ones. <laughs> uh, I just like to challenge myself and I'm a bit of a risk taker. So like, I think I, even when I was halfway through with the PhD, I realized I probably wasn't going to be a clinical psychologist, but I figured, eh, I'll challenge myself to finish it anyways. Right. Then I was sort of bored with what I was doing in New York, so I was like, mm, I want to challenge myself and go throw myself into a country where I can't speak the language. Exactly. Uh, you did that. Okay, so, yeah. so, let's, so you're in Osaka now with Sedjadim. Right. And you don't speak French either, right? <laughs> no. Right, right. <laughs> okay, so you, you're in the office. This is day one in the office. What was, I'm just, tell us a little bit of what that was like. Because, you know, you've worked, lived most of your life in one part of the world and right. done one thing. And now you're, you really have challenged yourself. Did you really feel you're out of your depth when you walked in there? Well, I mean, you know, Japan is quite a culture shock. I remember it probably wasn't the first day, but I think it was like the first week. Um, I was at the office and I was talking to a colleague and he was like, um, he was like, oh man, I left my cell phone on the subway. Mm. And I was, you know, I just moved from New York City. I was like, <laughs> oh dude, that sucks. I was thinking, you know, it's already been stripped and being sold. In, like, <laughs> it's China. in China now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and he was like, yeah, uh, it's uh, I'm going to have to miss half of my lunch. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, now I have to go down to the police station wow, to go yeah. get it. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> For New Yorker, this is new, right? Right? That sort of culture shock, uh, there was a lot of that for a while. Yeah. And especially in, but I did have a boss who, uh, trained me on all of the business related stuff. Like, yeah. you know, the different ways to bow, uh, mm -hmm. when you extend your business card, how it needs to go underneath your customers and, you know, wow. how to fold your jacket before you walk in. So you learn proper, you know, Japanese business culture because I mean, you, you can get away in Japan with that without knowing that stuff just because you're a gaijin, you know, a foreigner, right? They yeah. kind of they kind of accept that. Uh, yeah, culturally, you're probably going to make a lot of mistakes, so we'll forgive you. But you kind of trained in all of that, right? Yeah, but I'm still not good at it because <laughs> it, it's 
I sort of agree with you. You, you can play the Gaijin card, and a lot of times it's better to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Except, except, you know, taking your shoes off inside, right? We can't forgive yeah. you for that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So you were in this French-Japanese working environment in Osaka. And Osaka is not even, you know, like number one city in Japan. It's slightly different culture as well to Tokyo. I mean, that's, right. especially if you live in Japan, you'll appreciate that. It's a little bit more... I don't know. I mean, well, it's the merchant base of Japan as well. So they're a bit more in your face, I suppose, compared to Tokyo people. So you're in this really interesting environment. Maybe that's a bit more familiar to New Yorkers, right? So you're there and you had quite a a long career in this company. So tell us about the, you know, the last few years of your time at Sejidim, what was going on? And then that sort of cross into doing your own thing. Sure. So as, so first, when I started, I was doing something similar as in the U.S., building up these patient data business, and it was pretty good. I mean, we were making millions of dollars pretty quick. Um, but then, you know, there were some changes, and they asked me to run the market research company, um, which was okay. And then they asked me to run their publishing company and, and with the market research company and i said okay uh, a few years after that they asked me to also run their software business in right. japan so i had to run all of it but it was it was actually a really good experience because um we were all over the world uh Sejidim, but i think you know two of the big real big money makers were france and japan and so since we were delivering a lot of money headquarters let me do whatever i wanted basically hmm. So, like, I created my own smartphone data collecting system that didn't exist in any other country, or we created our own CRM system to sell, um, or we created a nominative database of, of all of the doctors in Japan, and just a variety of different products that only existed in the in Japan in the Sejidim right, world. Right, right. So it it was a great experience because it let me learn a lot about how to create products and bring them to market. Um, in fact, one of those I did with uh, a partner, David, David Liebrich, um, who was not at such an name, but, but we partnered on one of the, that smartphone data collecting system. And he's a serial entrepreneur in Japan. And after working with David, that really put the entrepreneur bug in me at one point. And I'd say so that at the final years at Sejidim, I um, – the company had changed a lot. The culture, like globally, had changed a lot, and I certainly wasn't uh, as happy as I had been. So, well, that combined with the entrepreneur bug as well, I think your your mind was starting to float beyond the boundaries, wasn't it? Absolutely. Like I, I sort of had two bosses. The way the company was structured, and one was great, but the other. I felt like I was managing up as much as I was managing my own people to do something new and exciting. So, Well, that means it's time to, you know, you kind of, you know, if you look at your career progression as an S-curve, you know, one, you know, many S-curves on top of each other, you're sort of coming to that top, aren't you, of that first S-curve. Because now you're starting to see marginal gains in your progress and you're starting to think, wow, I can do something now. You've got this entrepreneur bug. And there's, there's a couple of things I want to, I want to ask you. Um, one before I forget, I want to talk about having that entrepreneur bug as well. Before I forget, you know, your career progression is very interesting 
in, in that there's a, there's a very strong narrative at the moment, isn't there, about being an entrepreneur is that, okay, right, you leave school and you, uh, you know, you go and start your first startup and you, you do, you know, maybe you come out of Stanford in a pair of shorts and, you know, you get 5 million from your first accelerator funding, never worked a proper job in your life. And now you're onto this thing valued at a billion dollars. That's the very sort of strong narrative at the moment, whether it's true or not, we don't know, but it's, you know, it is out there, but it's definitely not the majority Right. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure, I think, for people to go and start a startup straight out of school, you know, when I mean at a university or, you know, leave their, the corporate worlds. But what we're finding, I think more and more so, is that some of the best entrepreneurs are those who have 10, 20 years of corporate experience. And for many of the reasons that you just mentioned, one being they understand what the problem is that they're trying to solve. Often the younger guys have have a solution without a problem. Right. But you've right. identified a problem and said, right, well, kind of, you know, you didn't even think about a company at the beginning. You saw the problem from the inside and later on you thought, well, maybe we can take this to another level. And also, you know, in your experience, what you said in the last few years is you had this network in which you kind of were behaving like an entrepreneur, but you had all the structural support of being within an organization. You know, they gave you the resources plug and play, all that kind of thing. So I think that there's a case, isn't there, for that approach to becoming an entrepreneur? Well, yeah. And I think if you look at the data, it's like the entrepreneurs who are like in their mid to late 30s, I think, have like the greatest chances of success. I remember reading that somewhere. I'm not exactly sure. But, But yeah, because I do think having worked in the large corporate environment, did give a lot of benefits, uh, even if some were painful. Like I had to learn about things that I personally am not very excited by, like finance or HR. Those are not the things that, you know, wake me up in the morning that I want to do. Um, but you have to know it if you're going to run a company. So I had to learn it. Uh, so that's good because that's all stuff that I've been able to, of course, carry over into end touch. Right. Um, Exactly. So I think it it was very beneficial in that way. Um, and also, again, combined with that sort of entrepreneur bug that I was starting to get from working with people like David, I, I started thinking, like, you know, I'm working insane hours all of the time just to make people in France more rich. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, if I'm going to put in all of this time and, and you know, create products out of my brain I, I should do it with like my own small team and make all of us rich right um it's very so. very interesting i yeah i mean my, my brother just a bit of context he works for a french company a french engineering company i won't say who they are um but you know he same thing he, he's like top of his game within that subsidiary within that company right and now they're looking at a management buyout, exactly the same conversation. I'm working crazy hours just to make these French guys rich. There's nothing against the French, obviously. Yeah. But you have that conversation. I mean, he, he's a, a doctor. I mean, uh, not, not a medical doctor, but he's, you know, like yourself, a PhD, he spent all his years hey. in one field. And you have that conversation. I think when you have that conversation, it, it that seeds planting, there's no going back, right? Mm. And, uh, I was kind of fortunate because at around the same time, uh, 
it was announced that uh, this American company called IMS, IMS Health, that IMS Health would be buying out uh, all of the healthcare uh, assets of Sejidim. So our market research company globally, our software company globally. So they were in Japan, IMS, their revenues were 10x what, what my company's revenues were, right? Mm. So I knew that when we merged, well, you don't need two presidents, right? So it would be a good opportunity for me to negotiate a nice way to leave uh, and yeah. have cash in hand to go – uh, not worry about a salary for a year or so and just go start a startup. Yeah. Why not? Fantastic. That was, well, I don't think it's fortunate. It, you got to put yourself in that situation first, haven't you? You got to leave the door open for good fortune to walk in and you put yourself there. I think all these kind of stars were coming into alignment because you were kind of heading down that path anyway, right? Which is great. Yeah. But it, it, but of course it took a long time for the actual acquisition to close, so yeah. I had to ah uh, I had you, to wait. You locked out during that. Were you on sort of gardening leave, so to speak, during that time, or you're still working? No, I mean I I stayed with them after the acquisition closed. I stayed with them for three months to do the proper handover, yeah. right? To be able to explain all the finances, all of what the strategy and thinking behind everything it was to the new management team so that they could make their own decisions given their own product portfolio. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, everything ended on very good terms. Um, but it, it was an interesting negotiation because I remember I was talking to they kept offering me jobs, right? Like you could take this regional role, you could do this. And <laughs> you were gone by that stage. Right, right. right. And so one of my friends was a recruiter. He told me no matter what they offer you, right. just keep saying, mm, it feels like it's sort of a demotion. <laughs> so no, no matter what the offer was, I was like, ah, it's so nice, but it feels like it's sort right, of a demotion. Right, right. So finally the president of the other company goes, do you want us just to pay you? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Make that <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great that they had, to, you were waiting for them to come up with that rather than you to pitch that to them, right? So it's fantastic. Yeah. Great. Well, you, I mean, it's fantastic what you are doing. And I think the problem you're solving is really, you know, it, it's not just a small space that you're in. It, it's a wider fundamental issue as well. I think you're unlocking a lot more. I mean, if we were to look at just what you're doing within the the medical space, I mean, you could look at parallels as well in all different kinds of industries. But let's just stay focused on medical because that's your shtick, so to speak. Um, you know, you talked about this problem between pharma and doctors. But, you know, these are not the only stakeholders in that whole setup. Do you see this what you're doing, you know, what you're, the problem you're solving with N-Touch, do you see that widening out, including a whole new set of stakeholders, you know, patients and so on? Do, do you have a vision for that that you can share with us? Yeah, of course. Um, I guess we have two aspects of our growth strategy. One would be uh, international. I could see applications of what we're doing would apply really well to like rural areas in China, which is hard to get access to those doctors or, 
or Philippines or Indonesia, you know, island mm-hmm. chains. So I think throughout Southeast Asia, there's lots of applications of what we've already got up and running, which is good because the customer service levels in Japan have to be super, super high. The yeah, expectations yeah. are very high. So I figure if we can do it right in Japan, we can export this pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, that's one. But what excites me even more is sort of a vertical strategy where like right now we're supporting pharmaceutical companies to deliver information to doctors. Um, starting next year, we're already starting to put it together. We'd like to start connecting doctors to doctors so that doctors can get second opinions from each other, can uh, provide referral networks that they trust, things like that. Um, and then ultimately, the government's going to be issuing some new guidance in 2018 on telemedicine in Japan. Hmm. So that's when a patient can connect with a doctor online. That's still called telemedicine. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah sure. Um where they can connect online through the phone and uh receive, you know, a diagnosis, uh, electronic prescription that they can pick up at a pharmacy. So we're not quite there yet in Japan, but I mm-hmm. think it's certainly moving in that direction, especially with the elderly population where you know, all the young people live in Tokyo, but all of their elderly parents live outside of Tokyo and exactly. and they need, you know, to be checked on and communicate with doctors. So what I ultimately want us to do is become the number one telemedicine platform in Japan. Hmm. Fantastic. And, you know, it's a growth industry in Japan for sure. I mean, you said at the top of the show the demographics and how that's changed in Japan. You know, that is an industry that's only going to grow. I mean, the the, the amount of money that's pouring into uh, health tech, med tech at the moment. It's just crazy, really. You know, and you just look at what's happening. I know, for example, I mean, you've got to come to Japan really to see it for yourself when you just see how many old people there are here, right? And you've got right. this situation where you've got less and less paying, people paying into the pot and more and more people who are relying on the system to look after them, right? It's just, you know... It, there is a real problem brewing at the moment, but at the same time, there's a lot of people working on the technology side to try and solve that. Mm. And it's fascinating that you're in there because I think that, you know, that is an area that just will just grow and fascinating to see what happens next as well. Yeah. And I remember, I don't remember who, but someone once told me uh, that if you're going to create a product, you want to create a painkiller and not yes. just an aspirin. So you, you gotta find a problem which someone is really hurting from, and that means someone's willing to pay to solve it. Um, and I think just the whole demographic situation of Japan, it's very clear. It's, it's, it's a very significant, substantial problem. And the government, though, to the government's credit, has been trying really hard to support this. They've been creating innovation hubs. Yeah. Um, they've been, I mean, giving $200,000 unsecured to a gaijin who could just, you know, wow. go go buy a boat and leave Japan. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're starting to take risks too, right? Because yeah, they know yeah. we need to solve this together. So exactly. it's a good opportunity. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even talked about marketing. I noticed, I had a note here. I noticed that you have written about that. And we haven't even gone there. But we'll save that for another time. I know you say your passion is making marketing better. And you say, uh, I mean, about giving a painkiller as opposed to, you know, aspirin is so important. I, I think by comparison, you know, you take Japan and Starbucks, you know, I'm from a marketing background, you know, Starbucks 
the reason why Starbucks is the most profitable of all Starbucks per square foot in the world is not because it sells the best coffee, because it's a painkiller, as you say. And the pain for the Japanese, and especially the kind of people that go to Japan, is loneliness, right? Mm. And, you know, you look around, there's this real lack of social space for people to hang out, which is not a smoky bar full of certain age men, or right. not work, right? So that's fascinating. And I think you nailed it. And to come into your space as a marketer as well, with that sort of mindset, I suppose it comes to the psychology background as well, which is sort of looping back into is appreciation for people's motivations and behaviors, as you say. Right. You know, as Mark Zuckerberg was a psychologist, well, not a psychologist, but a psychology major, right? It just goes to show that, you know, there is a space for that outside of clinical after all, you know, in this world. And I think, you know, what you're doing is fascinating. So please come back on the show in the future and share us an update. Maybe we can go a bit deeper into the marketing side as well and what you're doing as well as your latest, you know, your latest projects. Be fascinated to find out about all of those and share those with the listeners. And hopefully listeners today, you found that fascinating. That's Marty Roberts, everybody, the CEO of Touch in Japan. Marty, before I let you go, you have to share with us some links or link that we can go and find out a bit more about you. Sure. Uh, of course, you can go to Touch. Dot co dot jp um or just google search us we're <laughs> there, there and we'll, we'll put your details in the show notes as well marty thanks so much for coming on the show it's been really fascinating i really enjoyed it i feel that you know the hour wasn't enough for us to, to do Thanks. cover everything we, we've got to do this again and get a, a bit more deeper into it yeah thanks graham it was a lot of fun you've been listening to asia tech podcast Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.